welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenet in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Ogliano. How are you doing, Frank? David, I'm great. Happy New Year. We are recording this on the 1st of January, so Happy New Year to you, Frank, and Happy New Year to all of our all of our listeners. Yes. I hope, I hope 2022, I'm probably going to write that wrong for the next month, because uh, <laughs> we don't write checks anymore. Um, I hope 2022 is a, is a good year for everybody. But we thought today we would actually look back at 2021. I know many people are probably trying to forget 2021, but as historians, we have to look back at the, at the good, the bad, and the ugly, and... So we thought we'd see if we could contextualize what what does this past year look like? How will future historians uh, think about this past year that has has just ended? Uh, and what about it is is will remain historically relevant and important in retrospect? Yeah, there was an article in Politico about this that asked eighteen historians more eminent than you and me <laughs> um, this very question of what what will historians of the future have to say about 2021. So we thought we would take that as our point of departure. It's important to say, uh, as usual, we're, we're talking about historians of the United States, States in this yes. context, I think, to a, to a large extent. There may be some global issues, but we're mainly focusing on... So this is about the past and the future. We are envisioning ourselves in the future, looking back at the past, at this past year, and trying to guess what those future historians will um, think is important about this year that is just... Ended. Yes, David, as usual, you, you've managed to, to make complicated our fairly <laughs> simple <laughs> premise. I like time travel stuff, Frank. It's, 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 it leads into my, uh, you know. Uh, anyway, so so this past year, Frank, what would you rank as, as I mean, there's some like, let's, let's talk about, I mean, we've got some, are there important events from this past year? Yeah, I think we want to distinguish, and I think this is something we as historians try to distinguish between events, and there are a number of notable events. Um, and the longer-term trends that historians might be looking at. So, so our future selves or our future historians might look in 50 years, what's really important from 2021 might not be what we think is important mm. in terms of notable events. So I think notable events, you know, uh, let me give you three that occurred to me as I was thinking about this this afternoon that are, that are all significant in their own ways, but perhaps not as significant as we think they are. Mm. Uh, think about the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. I'm thinking about the Ghislaine Maxwell trial, those two trials which were completed in, the, in recent months, the Maxwell mm. verdict coming out just a couple of days ago. Um, or the death of Betty White, which occurred yesterday, and long, you know, rest in peace, Betty White. Those were all big things, mm. and they are big. They're quite significant in, in their own ways, and I think they're, they're representative. They speak to larger cultural moments, but they may not be as important as, say, the pullout from Afghanistan. To be sure. so, so I think there's a distinction to be drawn between notable events and often quite events that seem quite significant mm. and those things that seem to mark bigger trends and changes. Would you no, no, I think that's, that? de that's definitely right. I, mean, I think the, you know, and, and you, we, we see this anytime you go look and read old newspapers where their headlines are dominated by things and you're like, well, why is that important? The thing that's actually important is the thing on page three because uh, I think what often, you know, dominates the conversation for a moment isn't necessarily what actually is in retrospect, all that uh, historically significant. Right. Having said that, I think one of the most notable events of the last year, um, and, and outrageous and something that really seared itself in our consciousness and something we discussed at some length at the time, that will resonate is mm. the January 6th insurrection. We're coming up to the anniversary of that. We're looking at this a, a year on, and I think it's both... I, I, I think it will receive a lot of attention from our future selves and our future colleagues because it was both a incredibly complicated and powerful event mm. 
but it also is representative of longer term developments and changes, the likes of which we haven't yet worked out yet. Uh, and so I think that I think that in retrospect, that will will really seem to be a, a turning point. I don't know. How oh, you feel I, about I, that. I think, you know, you could probably already go ahead and write that future paragraph in the textbook about what the events were of January 6th. And, and you could probably even pick out, you know, one or two of the images that are probably going to appear. It's yeah, that the, paragraph afterwards that's going to be harder, what the consequences yes. of it are. It's that second paragraph that says, okay, Trump was impeached, but then X, Y, and Z happened. And I don't think we know what those are yet. It's funny, David. I mean, this is part of a partly a function of COVID and the lockdowns and the world we've been living in for the past two years mm. now, or approaching two years. Uh, but time really has <laughs> taken on a, a, a new meaning in the past couple of years. And so, so, so you mentioned Trump's impeachment. I have to confess, I momentarily forgot that Trump was impeached a second mm-hmm. time in two thousand twenty-one. Oh, that yes. this happened. After the insurrection, but before the the inauguration of Joe Biden, that's a huge event. Yes, undoubtedly, <laughs> it's not like but, we had that many impeachments. But but, but it, it sort of got lost in the just the cacophony of, of, of stuff in twenty twenty one, and it seems like both a lifetime ago and yesterday. It's a very time has. Uh, one thing the past two years have taught me as a historian is a year's a long time in a way that I hadn't properly appreciated when you're when you're living through Do events. It. Yes, to be sure. And 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 I, that seems uh, well, listeners, if you're still with us after all these years, you know I'm a bit stupid, so that, that won't <laughs> surprise you. But but um, it, it you know just how long a year is, and when you're when you know it's quite striking because you know when you when you're when you we're doing our research or writing, and when you're teaching, teaching the Civil War to students, you say, oh, well, eighteen sixty one, this happened eighteen sixty two. It feels like it all happens well, in a moment, right? Right, and it's not a moment; it's a really long moment. So. Going back to January 6th, however, David, we had a lively episode, I remember, a year ago mm. about that event. And if memory serves, and I could be wrong, you we had a little bit of an argument about whether it was a coup or not. And I think you were arguing it was a coup, and I said it wasn't. What was it? What do you, what's your view a year on? Oh, I think it... Well, I, mean, I think it was definitely an attempted coup. Um, you know, and I think, you know, the, the label that's been... a attached to it now the uh, the insurrection which i think is an interesting phrase for it i think sort of speaks to um you know how important that event was you know the the ramifications of it a year on are, are almost a year on are, are quite striking you know there have been a number of people um prosecuted for their involvement in in those events um there's obviously been the the uh, House committee investigating uh, the insurrection, um, and and but at the same time there's been substantial pushback against both of those things. Um, you know there have been people who have refused to testify before the House committee. There have been claims that uh, you know the and you can spin this different ways if you want to that that Trump appointed judges are being um, milder in their sentencing than non-Trump appointed judges. And and if you're on Fox News, that means the Obama judges are too mean to the Trump people. And then, you know, and if if you're watching a, a more legitimate news source, that means that, uh, you know, the Trump uh, judges are, are acquiescing or tolerating um, certain kinds of behavior that other judges aren't. 
Um, but it still remains that the a significant portion of Republicans think that the election in 2020 was stolen and that the use of violence to remedy that or to save the Republic or whatever the way the phrasing is, um, is justified. It's striking. So I think there's what, what's you know striking to me about the coup year or the insurrection or call whatever you want to, you know, is that the likelihood of a subsequent event of a similar nature, you know, is still very high. I'm concerned about, you know, and obviously you can't predict these things, but, you know, is there going to be another incident like that in the near future? And I, we can't rule that out. Yes, at the time, I think that I hoped, and I was fairly confident, again, proving that I'm terrible at predicting <laughs> the future, that this would be the very dangerous, slightly clownish end note to the Trump year, the Trump administration and the Trump years, but it would mark a sort of, as I say, slightly dangerous, but also slightly farcical ending to it all. And clearly that's not the case. It, it, it might be the beginning of something worse. We may look back and say, and, and, and the persistence of what the mainstream media has, I think, been calling the, the big lie mm. about the election is very interesting to me because, you know, we, we, we saw, you know, Rudy Giuliani outside total the Four Seasons landscaping and and uh, all that kind of stuff and and the lies that the Trump administration was telling about the election act between November and January November of twenty twenty and January of twenty twenty one again seemed absurd it's dangerous at the time but also absurd and and I at least I can't speak for you thought well okay. Once Biden takes office, that stuff is going to go away apart from a few, you know, the except the fringe. Yeah, except you know, a, you know, Alex Jones types and mm -hmm. things, and that hasn't been the case. I mean, it's become really a litmus test if you want to be a Republican office holder mm. or you want to run for office representing the GOP. I think you have to buy into this, okay. and so the the persistence of that, I think, is both worrying as you you've mm. suggested. But also has been slightly surprising to me because I thought I thought that would go away, yes. and it hasn't gone away. I mean, that what's happened to, to Liz Cheney is is quite striking. You know that she has gone from being Republican royalty to being not even considered by many Republicans to be a Republican anymore because she's willing to serve on the the committee investigating the events of January six, um, and so. Um, that, that event is going to definitely going to end up in the textbook. What other events strike you that, that, that are likely or possibly could end up in the, the future textbook that, that uh, gets foisted upon students if there are such things as textbooks yes. and such things that are students? I think the um, rather chaotic... Well, first of all, COVID. Sorry, let me back yes. up. Uh, COVID, and, and we're, in the, we're in the midst of the ongoing COVID pandemic. Mm. We're now in Omicron, but who knows what... Um, what variant will be on by the time you're listening to this? Um, and, and so the persistence of COVID, but particularly, again, we're talking from an American perspective mm. here or a U.S. perspective, the fact that COVID became, and I realize this was true in 2020, but it became even more pronounced in 2021, another front in the cultural mm. political war. So the debate about, and again, this predates 2021, but it became really pronounced in the, in the, in the year just completed. Uh, and tied up with the 
disputes about the election, frankly, and 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 the, its aftermath. Uh, I think the ongoing culture war over COVID, whether it was about mandates or vaccinate or uh, vaccine um, skepticism or hesitancy or masks, uh, the intensity of that. So I saw a figure the other day that. Um, 60% of Republicans are unvaccinated, where only 17% of Democrats are, and it's the largest um, partisan split on that question of mm. any country in the G7. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that, that, that the persistence of COVID and, and the, the ongoing pandemic and the way that we talk about the flu epidemic of a century ago, and that's in the textbooks, I think that will be in the textbook, but also it's, it's political and cultural manifestations. I think that would be one. I don't know whether you want to have anything yeah, to add um, to that. And then I've got, I've got a couple more. But, oh, but I've got that, a couple. Uh, couple I mean, uh, just to follow up on that, the, the, you know, the, the correlation between deaths from COVID in the past year when, when vaccines have been available um, and counties that voted for Trump uh, is quite striking. Right. And then there's a there's a core the correlation there. And obviously it's not a causation, but the correlation there between these sort of political communities and uh, of, of thought and culture and how one's relating to the pandemic is 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 quite striking. What other what other event? I mean, obviously, that that's a whole that's the whole year. Is the right. Right. Yeah, that's right. That's um, right. I mean, the other discrete event that I think is really significant is the rather um chaotic and, and tragic pullout from Afghanistan, which we had a, we, we talked about sure. in an earlier episode. But I think that marks an end, and I'm using quotation marks mm. here, to the so-called forever war. I mean, it does mark the end of an era that began on 9-11, or a particular uh, aspect of it. Uh, it may well mark a, a very uh, important moment in the transition of the United States' global role, or it's, you know, if, if one is talking about a, ascending China and the United States in decline, this would seem to be evidence for that. I'm a little skeptical about that narrative because I think we have to see how this plays out and we may not see it in our lifetimes. Mm. Um, but I think that that moment is really, really important in terms of uh, the global the global position of the United States. And, and also it signaled uh, in terms of domestic politics, that was when, I mean, criticism of Biden was building, but I think he got a lot of criticism from the left on that mm. one. And, and I think that that began a kind of autumn of discontent that, that President Biden has been, and his administration have been, have been going through and suffering and now into the winter. So, so I, think, I think it had immediate domestic ramifications, but I don't think those are as significant as the Longer term global mm. significance. Oh, I, I think uh, I, I think that's definitely you know, the. <coughs> excuse me. One way you can read the the pullout um, of from Afghanistan is not only the sort of the end of the war on terror. Well, to be sure, we still have um, prisoners in Guantanamo Bay. There's still lots of other things going on, but in terms of yep. large scale operations of the war on terror, that twenty year window is uh, at least appears to be closed. But there's also a way in which you could mark that as the end of the American century, right? That the, the sort of American... Maybe. The Amer at least at least a, a, sure. a, a end of a chapter, if not the end of the book. Uh, you know, that the role the United States has in the, in the Middle East is no longer as prominent as it was maybe a decade ago or two decades ago. You know, uh, the um, situation in Iran, situation in China... Um, Situations on the global stage, I think the United States is um, 
part of a larger cast of characters that, that that's in the discussions and lens is less of a uh, you know juggernaut than it, than it was or if it is a as large of a juggernaut it's joined by other juggernauts yes the unipolar war a world that was predicted at the end of the cold war in 1989 or uh, 1991 mm-hmm. uh, the end of history all that sort of thing in the early 90s the peace dividend oops yeah <laughs> seems like a faint memory now 30 years later uh, but that one of the, although one of the reasons i hesitate to make strong judgments uh, uh, about the present moment mm. is looking back at that moment and, and things that seem like certitudes didn't prove to be so. So um, Historians are good to pass for a reason. Right, exactly. Yes. exactly. Uh, so so I'm, I'm a little, uh, when I say maybe, you know, there, there, are, there are rising tensions right now in Ukraine mm. um, and, and those in part are a, are a, are a, a kind of response to the kind of circumstances you're, you're describing. Mm. But uh, they also suggest that, uh, or the, the response to those still suggests the United States has a lot to say about what goes on in the world, or may, may well do. Uh, and the kind of rising tensions and the very odd phone calls between Putin and Biden in the past couple of weeks are, are evidence of that. So, so I think you're right. I, something happened in Afghanistan. We, well, we know mm-hmm. something that mattered both for the region and as an end to the, I think it does mark it, an end of sorts to the war on terror. The longer-term global significance, that second paragraph that you're talking about, I think that remains to be seen, to be sure. That's, um, I guess, another, and again, whether this is an event or not, it's hard to ascertain. The attacks against democratic institutions and structures in the United States in the past year have been striking. And I think this is, in large part, a result of the election in, in 2020. It's a, a response to, to Biden's election, in part, uh, but there's the huge flood of, of new legislation introduced mm. across the country. More than 400 bills were introduced in 49 of the 50 states. I'm not quite sure which is the one state that didn't. Um, I'm sure they'll get to it. Uh, that would have limited voter access or, or, or uh, voter rights in some ways, either with limiting uh, you know, ability for uh, absentee voting or, or, or uh, other kinds of restrictions. Um, in 19 states, those kinds of laws passed, and, and it looks like in a few others they will pass in the next six months. Uh, and this is the biggest step backwards in terms of access to the ballot box since the Civil Rights Movement. And as a corollary to that, David, and, and I agree with you, I think, I, although it, that's more of a trend than a, than a specific event, you're right, mm-hmm. but um, and, and a significant one. A corollary to it has been the kind of concomitant legislation about critical race theory mm. and how history is taught and removing books from school libraries and this is and I think that they're I think the coalitions that support them they're the same it's the Venn diagram is a circle where they're concerned uh, but also they're they're of a piece with what I think is essentially a counter-revolutionary backlash Oh, oh, to be sure. I, I, I think, uh, in this sense, I, I, I think it's, and you've got more expertise in this than mm-hmm. me, um, it's a bit like the late 19th century and, and the either the end of Reconstruction or that immediate post-Reconstruction period where you have a kind of uh, political class, a threatened political class of, of uh, white people with power. In, the, in your period, it was in the South, mainly, consolidating that power and using pretty 
barefaced methods to do so. They weren't very subtle about it, and they're not being very subtle about no, it. No, no, no. Is well, that a fair analogy? No, I, th I think that's a very fair analogy. And, you know, if you look at, well, we can, we can talk about that in, a, in more detail maybe maybe later, but I think there, there is a definitely a, an effort to, to scale back the advances of, of the civil rights movement, the, the advances of the women's rights movement, um, abortion rights are under severe attack, and I think again this is the same coalition, generally speaking, um, that is is trying to scale back access to abortion rights. What's the end game, though, David? This is the thing I, I was thinking about this the other day. So, so, so for the the advocates of these various uh, policies, if we can call mm. them that, or the, supporting this legislation, um, and. Let's leave abortion out of it because I think the end game for that for that is to ban abortion. I think that's quite straightforward. But even if they manage to ram through these this legislation and the you know uh, Supreme Court goes along with it, etc., so the, the the restrictions on voting are upheld, what do we get in twenty fifty? Do we have basically white minority rule in the United States the way that we had in South Africa in the middle of the 20th century and parts of the American South in the middle of the 20th century. Yeah. So, I, In other words, I get that this is a response to losing the election in 2020 hmm. and frankly losing, what is it, four out of the last five, the popular vote in four of the past five presidential elections or what, what have you. This might even be more than that. Um, but I don't know what the end game is because... Well, politics isn't always, you know, it's always about the next election That's rather than the point. end game. That's a good point. Um, and, you know, given that now we're in an election year again, so we're going to have, um, you know, the, the fight this year is going to be over this year, and then, the, then it's going to be over the fight in two years. And so um, politicians tend to be amazingly short-sighted about their, their objectives because they have to be. Um, So you know, the, we I think we've covered some of the big events. What about important people? Uh, you know, Time Magazine named named Elon Musk the, the person of the year, uh, which I think everyone that thought was, was a up. weird choice. Yeah. So, well, yes, and and yes, that, that's not who I would have picked. Who would you have picked for your person of the year? On the supposition that Time usually picks somebody stupid for person of the year, and we can ignore them as a right. And to some extent, you think they do that so they deliberately generate the. Yes, yes. And the, the, the like stuff. when they had you as the as the person of the year with the, the shiny, the not me personally, person. but no, no, it was you and me and everyone else who bought Time magazine. But you had to buy Time magazine for it to be you because you had to look at it. Younger listeners may not realize that they had a shiny you know, cover image, and so you could look at yourself and say, "I'm on the cover of Time magazine," like the fake ones that Trump used to yes, have yes, of himself. Yes. Um, um, Okay, well, uh, let me give you my personal choice and then and then a, a, a professional choice. My personal choice would be my wife, Mimi. And the reason for that is uh, I think she's a stand-in, at least in my mind, and I recognize there are millions of people around the world who are doing this work. And she's, but she's the one in my life who spent hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours this year um, vaccinating people. And I think the, the, the global vaccination movement, incomplete as it is, and... Uh, it's not equally distributed globally, and that's a major issue. But I think the development of the vaccines and the and the um, delivery of those vaccines was an incredible achievement, and I think it's an incredibly important achievement. So, so that would be. But she um, didn't, and that happened in the United States. Sure. So there are anyway, there are a million, okay, there, there are many, many people who who did that. Anyway. Healthcare workers, yeah, 
Okay, that, good. But, but uh, so, so that would be one. Uh, that would be my choice. More generally, if I were doing this for Time Magazine and I would be accused of nepotism, you're probably not allowed to pick your spouse. I assume it. Well, if you're the editor of Time Magazine uh, or whoever picks this, I actually think Joe Biden. I think I think Joe Biden um, has had a much had a much better 2021 than either his political allies or his political enemies recognize. I think the um, I think the. Uh, Becoming president under the circumstances he did, and the um, re- introducing a, a degree of just normalcy, and I know that we we're not we, we had an episode that. on that. We were totally wrong about I know, going back. To I normal. know, but 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 uh, yeah, I think he achieved a lot this year. I think mm. the Biden administration actually achieved a lot, particularly given where where they started, um, and the infrastructure bill is really important. I think, and look, I know we didn't get built back better mm-hmm. and everything. Yeah, I, 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 I'm aware of the limitations there, but I actually think that history is going to be kinder, our future historians probably to Joe Biden, than um, the present is being. I think Joe Biden really is, and I'm not saying this is a criticism, shaping up to be a sort of Jimmy Carter figure where <laughs> people at the time are, are being pretty tough on him mm. and history is going to be kinder. So I think Joe Biden would have been the person of the year. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a radical pick. Who would, oh, no, so who would you pick and what do you think of my Biden pick? Only talk about the, your, your Biden pick first because I think that's a, an interesting one. So I think Biden... Um, Compared, you know, for a first-year presidency, he's faced, as you point out, enormous crises. He's got the, the, the pandemic. He's got uh, the economy was in a weird place when he took office, and it's been in a weird place all year in a variety of different ways, and he's had to respond to that with, you know, stimulus programs, with, with the infrastructure bill, with various other kinds of measures. Um, he's dealing with clowns in Congress in some cases. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know there are the the comparisons between Biden and FDR at the beginning of 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 his administration, and of course, you know they're both in in came into office at a time of, of economic crisis. They both came in, into office, um, you know, with a, in a an agenda of a normal sort of set of things they'd like to do. Um, the difference, of course, was that FDR had a huge majority in Congress that. While they didn't always agree with him on every specific issue, they shared a common, broad vision of what they wanted to do. And it took a while for FDR to actually sort of, even if he was able to get a lot done the first year, especially in the first 100 days, it still took a couple of years for them to really figure out a, a full legislative program uh, to combat the, the Great Depression. Um, so I think Biden is a very good pick. Um, you know, there is, he, 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 as you point out, he's, he's going to get dinged for a lot of things have been bad luck. Um, you know, Afghanistan, the pullout there could have gone very differently. Right. I think the, well, we had an episode. I'm not sure it could have actually, but, but well, okay. He might have been managed better, but I'm, I'm not even so, but but I'm not sure. I mean, how much of that is actually sort of lands on his desk and how much of that is about events on the ground and, and, and the chaos of, of how wars end. Which we talked about. But wars end can, can it, but that could have been very different. The, the, you know, the Omicron could have, if the pandemic had evolved in a different way, Biden could have had a lot better luck than he had. In the end, he's ended up with a lot of very, a lot of bad luck in his first year, and I think that's uh, telling about about how he's been um, 
treated by the press. He's been the one who I think have been um, maybe more harsh on him than, than he has deserved. I think I follow your line on that. Um, in terms of, of who I would pick for a person of the year, that's a very good question. Um, I you can pick Mimi if you want. <laughs> Mimi, but I think Mimi, I think we'd pick Mimi every year. Um, so you know, be you know, um, you know, I think if we were to sort of pick individual people, you know, Fauci's done, a, I think, a, a good job. That's a very hard job, but I think communicating, you know, the 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 putting needles in arms is extraordinarily important. Communicating to the public about the pandemic is very difficult, especially in this culture and and and, and uh, you know political landscape um, and doing so calmly and, and and giving both a sense of the seriousness of, of the disease and and the importance of taking precautions but also not sending people into a panic um, that doing that's tricky and I've been very impressed by, by fauci in that respect both in this past year uh, and really throughout the pandemic um, yeah, but definitely not Elon Musk, who I think is... Well, it, it, funny, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson were all billionaires who launched themselves into space or near space in the past year. And I think those are like, we, those are weird events that happened this year that dominated the news when they happened, but mm. actually aren't that important, or they're only important as so far as they are kind of testimony to the plutocracy we, we live with at the moment. Um, you know, so, so what they represent might be significant, but 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 it's just, it's gross consumption. Really. Yeah, no, I, mean, it's, I think the story there, as you, as you sort of allude to, is, you know, the, the rise of this a billionaire class who are seemingly above government, above regulation, above taxation in large part, um, that sort of exist a distinct and separate from you know the planet the rest of us live on both literally and, and metaphorically because of their sort of you know gilded age level wealth and hubris but one of the things we didn't discuss we haven't discussed yet it might be on your list so mm. forgive me uh, it wasn't on mine so 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 uh, I'm, I'm kind of criticizing myself here exercising mm. some self-criticism what about Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, and the metaverse? You know, is that is that you know, given given the importance and power, and we've learned a lot this year about the malevolence of Facebook. Mm. Um, you know, should that have been top of our list? Well, I think you know the the you know the thing that's going to show up in this future chapter that's going to get written or set of paragraphs in about twenty twenty one. You know, there's the the big events. There's the the, the pandemic. There's the insurrection, uh, and then there's these sort of long term changes in American society that came maybe to a particular point in twenty twenty one. And I think, you know, the role of social media, of alternative media, the role of and power of these institutions to not only connect us to our, you know, friends and family and other kinds of things that were what we thought they were when, when these, you know, first came on the scene 10 or 15 years ago and how they are shaping people's political worldview and shaping their actions and, you know, and how we are as a society unprepared for figuring out how to, to, to 
we know there's not a regulatory structure in place for these entities, um, and there aren't any sort of societal controls for when they um, go off the rails. And I think there's you know dozens of examples of that, both with the pandemic, with the insurrection, and with with, with politics more broadly. Um, you know, thinking about the, these sort of long-term trends and how they fit into 2021. This was a bad year for the environment, I think. Yeah, I had COP26 on my list. I mean, that was a... I didn't have high hopes for for, for COP26, uh, but they've also pr- failed to meet the low hopes that I had. Yeah, um, and the UN climate change report came out during the year about just, you know, basically saying... Things are worse than we thought, or, or worse than you believed, yes. um, and and that, that you know that may well be the most important event of the year, uh, or the, of the of the human history. Yeah. Yes, um, <laughs> potentially, uh, you know, and that's the kind of story that isn't on the front page day in and day out, but is going to the choices that have been made over the past, uh, well, over the past century, but especially over the past. 10 years and, you know, are going to resonate for a long time to come. You know, and there's choices about um, things that happened, you know, at the conference in Glasgow. There's, you know, the inability of the Biden administration, put thinking about this from the particular, the American perspective, you know, what has the Biden administration done over the past year to address the climate crisis? He's done a bunch of little things. He's rejoined Paris. He's instituted a number of, sort of regulatory things. But in terms of the kind of meaningful action that, that is needed to confront a crisis of this size, I, I don't think he's done it. Now, there's reasons for that. Yeah, I mean, the, Joe Manchin being the, the most prominent born. of those, uh, and Kirsten Cinema, I suppose. But uh, remains to be seen, because that, 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 the Build Back Better bill may be back in some way, shape, or form, but the environmental dimensions to it seem to be the real sticking point between um, the Biden administration and Joe Manchin. Uh, whether Joe Manchin should have this much power to determine the fate of the, of the, planet, yeah. of the planet is, is, is uh, certain to be que- certainly should be questioned. Uh, but we it's not for lack of trying, and I realize that Trying doesn't count when it comes to the climate crisis, but that story's not over yet. This might look different. Might look different on New Year's Day, twenty twenty three. Yes, it might when we're on a raft, or it might look worse. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yes, I like that. We yeah, we're anticipating that there'll be textbooks in twenty fifty <laughs> in the metaverse. Exactly, we'll all be in the metaverse <laughs> on our rafts in uh, you know, a water world or something like that. Kevin Costner movie was right. Um, what are the other sort of big? Uh, trends that you see that happened in, in in 2021 that may not have been front page news that are gonna in retrospect look important oh that's a good question um one for me is i think the changing nature of work i think the, yeah the, the great resignation this year has and... been huge and i think you know that the and that happened i think for a variety of reasons i think the pandemic had a huge amount to do with that i think people we're forced to work in a new way, and that led to new ways of working. I think the stimulus checks that people received allowed people to make different kinds of choices about how they wanted to, you know, live their lives and structure their lives. Some people used the money to start new businesses. There's a huge number of new businesses that opened um, 
as a consequence of that. But I think also people are found themselves unwilling to go into a low paying job when there was the added threat of of catching a potentially deadly deadly virus in the process. Mm-hmm. Where people said, "Look, it's not worth it to me to make you know seven fifty an hour to 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 be." harassed by customers and, and to, you know, also potentially get ill from it. Uh, that, I think, is going to, you know, in retrospect, is going to be, this is going to be a pivotal moment in terms of how Americans understand their relationship to work, or at least a pivotal moment. Yeah, I can't remember whether I've discussed this on the podcast, and if I have, please forgive me. Have you seen the program Superstore? I have not. Okay, Superstore is available, at least in the UK, on Netflix. I don't, and it's on Peacock as well, so it, it would be available on NBC and its affiliates in the United States. It's a sitcom with America Ferrera, and it's it's okay. It's not it's not actually I like it, but it's not it's not laugh out loud funny. It's not great as humor, but what it's really good at, I think, is presenting the lives of working class Americans. Because most working class people actually work in retail mm-hmm. and jobs like that. And it's about working in a place that's clearly Walmart, although it's not called Walmart. And it's about a Walmart, uh, sorry, a, a, a fictional store like Walmart outside St. Louis. And I could highly recommend the first episode of Series 6, which was obviously the first one that they made after the, or during the pandemic, mm. after production was interrupted by the pandemic. Because it's about those early days of the pandemic. So it starts in March of 2020 and it extends through the summer. It's one of these kind of sure. a lot, time passes and they say, oh, it's only going to be a few weeks. Oh, now we all need masks. We don't have any masks. And as a snapshot of that early history of the pandemic, mm. it's only 22 minutes or whatever, you know, like a sitcom. It's excellent. It's really, really good. And, and America Ferreira's character ends up getting consumed by Zoom meetings <laughs> and spending all her time on Zoom meetings and things. It's really, really good. But it goes to that point you were talking about, the, the, the changing world of work. And those trends have been underway for a while, but I think COVID mm-hmm. has acted as a catalyst or an accelerant for a lot of those changes. So I think that that's right. The other thing that I think is one of the longer-term trends, and, and it relates to this, and something we talked about earlier when we had the episode about supply chains a few months ago, uh, is about the changing nature of consumption. And how we buy stuff, what we buy, and and the the um, the pandemic really exacerbated a lot of that. Oh, to be sure. I think, and 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 that, you know, we we don't go out to stores anymore to a large extent, and and it's not just oh, people buy stuff online. I think it's the kind of scale and scope of online consumption is is really, uh, really uh, accelerated by an order of magnitude in in the past two years. I think there's going to be some real substantial um, consequences of this going forward. I mean, I'm thinking, I'm thinking about, let's imagine what, what about Manhattan looks like, uh, my, my hometown. Um, you know, there's a huge amount of office space in Manhattan that, that people realize they don't actually need. And, and what's going to happen to that? And how is that going to affect real estate? Do people have to live in big cities when geography doesn't matter as much? Is that going to, ch- it's going to change the sort of, uh, landscape in a very literal sense about how people work and i think this this last past year has been uh pivotal pivotal for that um and there's obviously some very interesting generational elements to this where um you know the world of work that 
people in their their 20s and 30s have faced their entire lives starting with the 2008 recession but then sort of culminating in the events of this past year have meant that they have been in a very particular financial position their entire lives and that's going to become increasingly important uh, for the American economy and for American politics thinking about generations people who are don't own as many homes as the generations before them aren't going to work in steady employment in a particular place nearly as much as their parents did or definitely not as much as their grandparents did um, so it's going to be I think a, a real pivot pivot point great well, we well I don't know whether it's great but it's been pretty grim it's um, been pretty grim hopefully the future will be better and and hopefully 2022 will be a uh, better year to do a retrospective on in a year's time yes hopefully when we do this episode next year We'll be talking about all the great things that scientific discoveries and yeah, and just life extending peace things. and harmony the, broke out. Yeah, the, yeah, the rainbows and everything. <laughs> yes, I'm not holding my breath. Um, right, time for time for last drop, right? Give us something to to I, I cheer us or distract us for. I've what got happened. a very good distraction, I hope, and it's it's a podcast called Lost Hills. Lost Hills. Okay. Yep, and it's it's hosted by a, a New Yorker uh, journalist named Dana Goodyear. And the Lost Hills in question, it basically focuses on, on Malibu and its environs in California, which is not an area I'm terribly familiar with. I've been there, you know, passed through, but I don't really know it all that well. But in the second series, which is just dropped within recent, uh, within the past few weeks, and I listened to, listened to it over the holidays while doing the dishes and things like that, um, it, it concerns a... I guess it's a true crime podcast, but I think that's not quite doing it justice. But but it concerns a uh, uh, a murder case in Malibu um, from nineteen eighty one. But the very first episode of the second series, so I'm talking about Lost Hills, series two, episode one. Now uh, is setting the stage and looking at Malibu and its its kind of history and social history in the nineteen seventies and its transition from sort of slightly scruffy beach town to haven for the rich and famous and the kind of tensions therein. And it's a brilliant piece of social history. It's, it's, it's riveting. It's great. It's interesting. They, she's got interviews with Ali McGraw, the actress, Ali McGraw sure. with Robbie Robertson, the musician from the band. Uh, and the, uh, Ali McGraw talks about being priced out of living in Malibu, how yes. she had kind of gone there. Um, and, and there it's, it's, it talks about the kind of drug revolution and the sexual revolution and all that was going on in Malibu in the 1970s. And, and that, listen to the first episode of the second series. I think you'll probably stay for the whole thing because mm, okay. the, the, the case itself is interesting. But as a piece of social history of the 1970s, it's it's really outstanding. I really, really enjoyed it. And, and, and Dana Goodyear seems to have really done her homework. I mean, the, the, the interviews they did and, and the number of people they spoke to is quite remarkable. So, yeah. Lost Hills series one, series two, episode one, but the whole thing is great. Cool. What about you, David? Uh, well, I just want to draw people's attention to um, some time capsules that were were discovered in the past couple weeks. I think, as many uh, listeners know, there was a statue of, of of Robert E. Lee in Richmond that was taken down, and as they were taking down the pedestal upon which the statue was uh, erected. Uh, they discovered not one but two time capsules embedded within, um, within the pedestal. One they were expecting to find, the other one they were 
we're not expecting to find. And I find that the, the idea of a time capsule fascinating. Why were there two? Were there rival time capsule groups? Well, it seems as if one is the one. So there's one that we have descriptions of in the newspaper of um, the, the, where the contents of the box was actually pretty well known or at least moderately well known. Um, that was actually the second one found. Because when they found the first one, um, the contents didn't match up the description they had. They're like, oh, this is weird because we thought we knew what I was going to find in this. Um, I'm not sure they know yet about why there are two. And I think they're still trying to figure out what's in these boxes. The The contents are in moderately good condition for uh, time capsules. Oftentimes when they open these things up, they just find like brown sludge in them because they, they get waterlogged. And in this case, there was some, um, you know, it was a sort of a metal box that was in water just because the water tends to seep into these kinds of things. Um, but I find the idea of trying to communicate with the future fascinating because nine times out of ten when they when they have time capsules the stuff in it is crap it's usually like minute minutes of you know newspapered things and committee meeting notes and stuff that gets put in a time capsule um it's very rarely anything that anybody in the future really wants you do or, realize that the episode we're just wrapping up is basically a kind of oral time, time capsule, capsule yes anyway. well i don't know <laughs> if anyone is listening to this in 50 years time <laughs> God help you, first off. But, you know, if I don't know why they would. Like, researching what middle-aged academics in the year 2022 <laughs> talked like. Um, but, yeah, it's, I think the idea of trying to communicate with the future is fascinating. And trying to figure out what people in the past thought that we would want to have from their time period. What we needed from them to make sense of things like a statue of Robert E. Lee. Um, so is the, based on the newspaper reports. Yes. Is the material in the time capsule related to Robert E. Lee and the dedication of this statue, or is some it of, stuff from 1890 or whatever that yeah, statue was dedicated? Some of, uh, it's from the, I think it's 1887. Okay, um, sorry. It, it's sort of stuff sort of not necessarily directly related to the statue, but it's a lot that sort of is of a piece with it. So there are, there was like a, a drawing of Abraham Lincoln that was from a, they thought it was going to be a photograph. It turns out it was actually a, a, a drawing uh, there were some several books in there about the history of Virginia and the history of Robert E. Lee and the Civil War. I think they're still trying to figure out. There's some other clippings of things. Um, you know, there's some Virginia, uh, sort of Richmond City Council minutes, that kind of stuff. Um, all of which we already have copies of other places. So it's not like any of this is like, ooh, now we know what right. the Virginia City Council was saying and, you know, uh, Richmond City Council was saying. So it's a. Uh, yeah, I've yet to see a, a time capsule, uh, you know, from the past where people said, "Ooh, that's actually really cool and interesting." What they there's a very good episode of Parks and Rec where they're putting a time capsule in Pawnee, Indiana, and the, the, the debates in the town meeting mm -hmm. or in the public meetings they're having about what to put in it are very, very funny, uh, and and uh, that should go in a time capsule. <laughs> well, what, what do we what would we put in a time capsule from 2021? Face mask. Oh, you definitely have a face mask. Some vaccine in case they need some vaccine. <laughs> um, yeah, I think uh, that's a, that's a very good question. A face mask. Um, is this an American uh, time capsule? American time okay. capsule. Okay, uh, probably a Trump flag. It, okay. You know, or a don't tread on me flag, and maybe a Gadsden flag, but one of the the kind of iconography that, that they that they that was prominent uh, among. A link to a Zoom call. 
Yes, yes, yes. A sign that just says buffering. <laughs> or, or you're on mute. Huge. Yes. Amazon delivery box. Is yes. This is yep. Yeah, yeah. All right. All right, David. Well, here's to a, here's to 2022. 22. Exactly. Happy New Year, everybody. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and dean international for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at WhiskeyRebelPod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes. 